about that. We are normalizing corporal punishment. Uh, but I would say um, our parents were, were trying to install discipline and uh, for us to be aware that when I do this certain thing, um, my mom or my father will hit me. Or if I don't come at home um, at this certain time, and then I would face um, some certain, certain um, consequences. Thank you. Sure, and I appreciate that. I think that um, even well-intentioned in, in, parents who aren't trying to hurt their kids might hurt their kids. I really appreciate that that may be the case, that, um, uh, that, you know, that parents become frustrated or they become um, unsure of what to do. But that, that in itself is showing that there's a gap in society, that we need guidance as people, as parents, certainly as educators, um, as, as, as a society, as a collective, right? Um, if we think of Ubuntu, it's not only parents who raise children. Um, and it's not only parents who beat children. Um, that, that there are lots of adults. I, re I remember my uncle um, who would get the, the slipper and beat me um, if he thought I was misbehaving. Um, but uh, this isn't about me. My point is, um, is that even well-intentioned adults who are trying to raise good kids or might be doing harm to their children. And just a, a, a point earlier, I, I think there was a question about whether um, corporal punishment has been banned. It has been banned both in homes and in schools. So it, it's not something that is um, allowed in any of these spaces. So in addition to, to hurting kids, parents are actually um, illegally um, hitting their children. So... Um, I know that um, I, I can see in the comments that there are people who share the frustrations of parents and maybe some of you are parents or, know, or, or have uh, young siblings around and you're, you're aware of, of very precocious young children who don't listen and who don't um, you know, do what adults want, which, I mean, maybe that's problem number one. Right? Why do we want children to follow us unquestionably? I can never say that word, unquestionably. Anyway, I, can, I can't say it. Um, uh, because that, that uh, harks back to that authoritarian personality stuff that we've already spoken about in class. We don't want kids who are going to just completely follow orders like they're soldiers. Or I don't want that in society. Um, because then we have kids who, are, have de who do develop power complexes, who think that they need to be, when they grow up, that they need to be um, at the head and people need to listen to them. That, 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 or, or that they need to, I mean, if we think about authoritarian personality, that, they, that you either have people who are perpetrators or people who are followers who... Um, develop their personalities in relation to their social position, I think that that's hugely problematic. I don't think we want that. And I, and I know that in terms of parenting, that's kind of become normal, that their parents say something, um, you need to do this, and kids need to say, yes, ma'am. And that's it. Um, 
that if a, if a child has a, 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 a different way of thinking or a different way of, of uh, understanding what is a priority in their own lives, that they are developing independent thinking that might um, lead them to being really creative um, people later, why, you know, why are we stifling that? So let's say, for example, you say to a kid, um, you need to be home by six o'clock. And then the kid isn't home by six o'clock, we beat them, right? That's, that's kind of normal. But what if, if instead we, we develop skills with that kid to say, okay, they would like to spend more time with their friend or they would like to spend more time in the library or they would like to, to go to the soccer class that only starts at six o'clock. And how does that fit into their lives? What does it contribute towards their lives? Does it add value to their lives? Can it fit into you know, what the other family needs might be? And to start to develop those kinds of skills with that kid that they can not only negotiate and communicate who they are and what their needs might be um, with you and that you actually listen and take them seriously and, and maybe meet some of those needs um, and then have your needs met because now you've got a kid who's suddenly, you know, taken an interest in soccer and actually maybe has some skills in that. But if you just are, are dogmatic as a parent and six o'clock is six o'clock, that's it, I'm not listening um, and if you don't follow my rules, you're going to get beaten. I don't know who that benefits. And so, so I know that I said we can have the conversation about dis discipline. This is that conversation. This is the conversation about discipline because there are ways to, to build individuals' character while also asking them to respect people within the family's needs as well. So, uh, yes, you, you're talking to me about staying later to go to soccer. Who is then going to fetch you? How are we going to negotiate that? Because maybe I'm not finished at work in time, or maybe um, it's it's really dark and it's not safe, or um, maybe your brother has something on at that time that that they you know that that is also important to them, and we need to balance all of these these dynamics at the same time. Do you see how when we have this third conversation? Suddenly, it's not just a yes or a no. It's not just I beat you or you do it and and um, and are unruly and disrespectful. But there's a place in the middle where we can start to have conversations with each other, where we can start to see each other as human beings, where we can start to think about what each other's needs are and and work towards making people who are as a, as I'm going to repeat again, happy, healthy, and thriving, um, because. In those other two scenarios where I beat you or where you just become unruly, actually nobody wins. Um, nobody wins in that scenario. You, um, you might get as a young person what you need, but you're not getting then the affirmation and the affection from your family that you might need. If I'm beating you, I'm not getting um, what I need from you. I might get you to be compl uh, compliant and stay home at 6 o'clock, but then you're not thriving and you're not happy so I don't win in that situation either. That middle ground, that other position where we can, we can work with children who are not just yes ma'am, no ma'am, three bags, full ma'am, 
actually is is a an alternative way of raising children that we have to consider um and i really do appreciate that there are different uh contextual and communal and cultural experiences that you're all bringing to the table but i want you to think outside of your own experience for for a little bit just like um think about if things were different how could we do that how could we if kids don't listen get them to listen without beating them just think of that as a possibility um how can we make good men that aren't being um being beaten to be good men how can we do that um because i i, I think with enough creativity and with enough willingness you'll find that there is a third position that actually might benefit more people okay the last uh, comment from kamalo Oh yes, thank you again. Uh, I think, uh, as I said, uh, ma'am, that uh, it's not like your parents uh, they hate you when they when when they they beat you. No, uh, uh, I remember when I was at primary, uh, I refused to to go to school one day, and my father beat me. He beat me hard that. Uh, I I'd never ever think of not going to school. Look at look at at, at where I am uh, today. Imagine if he he just let me and said, "I oh, know, see what you do with yourself." So he was shaping me that school is important. So you need to go to school. So and the uh, the, the, the the you 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 said about. Uh, uh, 6 p.m. There was a, a, a rule uh, at home. Uh, my father imposed that uh, at 6 p.m. we must be within premises. If you are not, you are gonna get a hard, hard, hard beating. You know, he saw that uh, if you are not at home by 6 p.m., where are you? You are gonna uh, encounter dangers. They are rapists. They are murderers. They are they are, they are very dangerous people uh, around at that time. So. He wants uh, to protect uh, his family, so I think maybe if maybe you could uh, look look at this uh, corporal punishment from that perspective, that the parents are trying to protect uh, uh, their kids, not necessarily that they are, they are beating them just for the sake of beating them. I actually completely agree with you, and this is what I said earlier. I think well-intentioned parents, loving parents, will hit their hit their kids and unintentionally cause harm so and not in every case and this is this is um what's hard to always show as well is is that sometimes kids who get beaten don't you know that they have that they're strong kids or they agree with their parents or they um you know for the most part um understand and and accept the, the the beatings that they've gotten um now those are are two different things actually so you can have loving caring kind wonderful parents i i certainly do and maybe i haven't made that clear when i I spoke about my mom beating me with a red spoon i love my mother i am very um close with my mother but i also know that when she beat me that hurt me and and those two things are different things um that they're actually i can i can believe both of those two things um at the same time i can know that my mother loved me and meant well and i can know that that 
that it turned out bad for me. Um, and those two things don't have to be um, like, like I don't have to lose one in order to believe the other one. I can hold both of those two things at the same time. Um, and I think that I think that that's also why we we're scared to say corporal punishment is bad because then we then we say my my mother was bad, or my father was bad, or the the teacher that beat me in school was bad. No, these could be good, loving parents who whose only strategy, their only the only way they knew how to to make us good people was to hit us. But now that we know better, our generation, now that we know better, we can do better. And we can, we can raise our children differently. And, and with the interest of still raising good children, of still having children who are respectful and kind and loving and um, who contribute to our families, who contribute to our societies, who make us proud as parents without beating them. And so we are tasked with, with not changing our parents or changing what happened to us. We can't do that. We can't go back in time. But we can, going forward, be the kind of parents who, um, who find ways to ha have relationships and, and build uh, understanding of good and bad with our children without beating them. And that's the difference. That's, so I'm not disagreeing with you there in relation to that your, your dad, um, you know, he raised you the way that he knew how to become the person that you are today. Absolutely. I completely agree with that. But did it, it maybe come with some side effects that maybe you, you don't even know about? I don't know. Possibly you were one of the strong ones who, who's done really well. But not all kids are going to be strong like that. Um, in, in fact, the research shows that most kids aren't strong like that, that most kids actually carry that violence with them through the rest of their lives. And that for most kids, if it didn't happen for you or it didn't happen for some of your peers, that most kids, and maybe it's the ones who didn't make it out, the ones who didn't finish school, the ones who didn't make it to university, um, that most kids suffer um, some kind of harm as a result of the corporal punishment they experience as, as children. And it could, just, it could just be the way that you build relationships, the kind of relationships that you have with others, your friends, your, your partners, your family, um, that, that those are affected by it. It could be that it affects um, the ways that you relate to other people, to strangers, um, in the work that you do. Um, it doesn't have to be suddenly now you're going to be a, a serial killer because you were beaten as a kid. No, it can just have this this um, insidious harm in the in the kind of life that you live, and you don't even know that it's there because you don't know what you would have been like if you hadn't been beaten. So you don't know that that actually you might have had better friendships and better relationships with people if you hadn't been beaten. And, that, and that's what the research is suggesting to us, is that actually um, a kinder, nicer society comes from having kids that aren't experiencing violence when they're growing up. 
Okay, so I'm going to end the, the conversation about corporal punishment there. Um, certainly, as was raised very eloquently by um, some of the comments earlier, these theories are limited. They don't include a, a structural analysis. They don't include a peer-to-peer -peer analysis. Those were very nice additions to our thinking on this. Um, and I think that they're ones that if you are doing um, your assignment on youth or in a, a case of youth, as I'll explain in, in a moment when I talk about the assignment, then um, you might want to include this sort of critical ang angle to thinking about um, what you're looking at when you do your assignment as well. That you don't just show me how these theories work, but you also critique them. And if you want to critique them from a, a sociocultural perspective and the ways that um, sort of the urban-rural divide is experienced, um, you're welcome to do that. Uh, I would encourage you to get some uh, reading to support you, but, um, but certainly you can take a position that's different to my position and defend that position, right? That's, that's kind of um, a lot of what um, my belief is, is embedded in as well, is, is that we're all independent people. We all are coming at the world with our own unique understandings and experiences, trying to make sense of what we're seeing. So take that forward and defend that as a position if that's how, how you feel about things. Okay. Um, sorry, I'm just going to share my slideshow again. So we're going to move on to, to talking about media theories. And these are actually now a completely separate uh, area of investigation. So we've looked at individual theories. I'll go back to this first slide. We've looked at individual theories. We've looked at childhood theories. These are all theories that specifically try and understand what the origins of crime and violence are in society and for uh, people who are growing up within the society. Um, but now we're going to look at media theories. And these media theories are leading us to think about the ways that the media might participate in how we think about or behave in the world. And but particularly the ways that the media reports on or presents how crime and violence is being, stories are being told and the ways that this impacts on what people think about crime and violence. So there's four media theories we're going to touch on. There are an endless number of media theories in the same way that there are an endless number of childhood theories. Um, the media theories that we're going to work with are these four. But if you find others, if you find ones that you've covered in other courses or that as you're doing your research for the assignment, you come across some others, you're welcome to include them um, with references. So wherever you find them, make sure to reference them and um, and to talk about those in in your assessments as well. That's completely fine. But I know certainly when we do the next test, um, you and even this assignment now, these are the ones that I'm looking for. So start with these four, and then if you want to add more, that's fine. So the first of the four theories is news values. And this is the, the factors that uh, decide how a story is being told or if it's being told at all. right? So these are things like the impact of the story, the timeliness of the story, whether it's a 
the prominent story within uh, the local environment, its proximity, how how close it is. So whether it's a story in South Africa or in in Egypt, right? Um, that might make a difference on whether the story is told. Um, its bizarreness, whether there's any conflict included, and its currency. So these are all aspects of a story that might inform whether that story is being told or not. So a story um, that is about a serial murderer might have a lot of uh, impact. It might ha- might be very timely if it's happened recently. It's a prominent story within local discourse. If it happens uh, in the local community or within South Africa even, it may be considered to be relevant to the local context. It's somewhat bizarre in that serial murder is actually fairly unusual. It includes conflict, it includes some kind of violence, and um, it's seen as, as current and relevant and, um, and appropriate to report. So that kind of a story would probably get a, a, a front page, whereas something like um, somebody having their cell phone stolen at the street corner would be considered less impactful, uh, less bizarre, probably not including any, any direct conflict um, where, you know, like um, the this, this sort of quote of if it bleeds, it leads, you know, would be relevant. And, you know, like it, it's, it happens often enough, it's, it's a common enough occurrence to not um, really get major focus in reporting. So stories that have more of these factors would be um, considered more influential, would, would um, mean the story gets a, a higher sort of like um, reporting than others. And this is, we see this kind of like the difference between like, let's say a, a kid, a white kid with blonde hair who looks like an angel gets murdered versus like a kid from the township who is probably um, more representative of the South African population and kids who, who get murdered. Like, like actually the kind of kind of children who get murdered are, would be more co- represented by that child. But actually it's the, the white angel who probably makes the front page um, and is reported on all the news outlets and, given the most sensational sort of like coverage. Um, and it's interesting how these things are decided. So, so when and how do we decide that a story should be covered and, and, and uh, to what extent, who decides that and for what reasons? And those are, those are questions about news values. Um, they, they are sort of unwritten rules about what kinds of stories would count as a good story and which ones don't. Um, And they're inherently revealing of underlying race, class, gender, etc. biases within the media often. So there's very often a sense that, um, that these things show the the unequal space that that we currently operate in and so the media is therefore perpetuating those uh unequal biases that they the media is continuing to to present the news in a way that um 
reinforces certain ideas about what counts as, as a good victim, what counts as a as a um a good perpetrator, and all of the stuff in between. What you know, what should be covered and why and how. I know last week for those who watched Bowling for Columbine, um, if you haven't seen it, of course it's on your flash drive, so make sure that you get that and watch it. But for those who did see it, there was the the ways that the media there was focusing specifically on uh, black perpetrators, black male perpetrators. And, I mean, anybody who's done any research on the U.S. will know that the ways that black men have been set up as violent um, perpetrators within that society is hugely, hugely problematic. So, And certainly that's been uncovered even more since George Floyd, but... Um, but that kind of way in which um, the news plays into that social understanding and can either dismantle it or reinforce it. And it does that through these kinds of unwritten values that are embedded in how stories are being told in that space. And I think in South Africa too, we need to, to very clearly think about what, what makes the front page and what doesn't. So, so, um, what kinds of, of crime and violence? And this, this includes those levels we've spoken about before. So do we talk about structural violence in the same way that we would talk about, you know, a mass shooting or, um, you know, uh, a major um, sort of other kind of uh, like murder spree that might make the front page? Um, I don't know if we, we do talk about structural violence in that way. I don't know if we talk about even social violence in that way. I think about xenophobia. I saw recently, very recently, um, a report in uh, Gauteng about um, illegal, uh, illegal traders who are of foreign origin being expelled from different communities. So the, the constant threat of xenophobia and xenophobic violence in some communities um, I don't know if that gets any kind of coverage in the mainstream media um, until it's, it's like a major event. Like these sort of more um, local experiences of xenophobia, I don't know how well they are covered. Um, and what that says about what we as South Africans and as newsmakers think and believe about these kinds of violence does it reveal that we are inherently xenophobic or are we just apathetic to that violence? Has it become normalized? Um, what, do, what is it saying that, that we don't cover structural or social violence in the same way that we cover um, major events of, of interpersonal violence? Okay, then the next one is, is simplification. And this is... Um, it's, in fact, an incredibly simple theory, and it, it focuses on the ways that writers, news writers, media um, people, even presenters, broadcast and radio, are simplifying the ways that they write about crime and violence. So they won't talk about um, the... The bigger picture. They won't talk about what led somebody to commit crime and violence. And I would have loved you to have seen um, Tsotsi. If you have already, uh, that's really great. But um, that's definitely one of our course movies. 
And if you would have seen that, you would understand that, you know, that the, the main character in this, from a sort of media perspective, would just be painted as a, an evil, bad person. Once you get to know his life, you might think slightly differently. And um, uh, so when we get to that, I want you to think about this particular theory, because we reduce or we simplify our understanding of crime and violence to its extreme limits. And so we think of the victim as completely innocent, that they did nothing and, and, and didn't deserve to experience violence. And we think of the perpetrator as wholly evil, completely evil, and, um, and that they are mad or bad, and they, there is no sort of way in which they might be responding to the circumstances that they find themselves in or the society that they live in or that they um, you know, are um, reacting to a, a corrupt system, a corrupt society that they live in. And I don't mean corrupt like politically corrupt. I mean corrupt like in a society where people are are inherently bad towards each other and they are reacting towards their experiences of that. So we we write our stories as, you know, this this poor guy was walking down the street and he was mugged and uh and the perpetrators cut his, his head off in the process or something. You know, like some sort of sensational thing happened. These perpetrators did this completely unheard of crime and um and the the perpetrator did nothing to uh, i mean the the victim did nothing to instigate it and um the perpetrators were just you know really just completely otherworldly evil um and that way of writing which um is much more subtle than i'm suggesting right now but that way of writing really decontextualizes what is actually happening. So we don't understand that perhaps the perpetrator has, um, I don't know, come out of the hospital where they are not getting treated and that this is, um, you know, this is their, their frustration, if we think of frustration aggression, being um, put onto a, a scapegoat. Or perhaps, um, you know, if we think about like, home invasions, that maybe this is because wealth is being accumulated in these small pockets, usually white um, communities, that um, other people don't have access to. And so home invasions actually might be um, a way that uh, communities are responding to this inherent inequality. And that while we don't condone home invasions, we see it against the bigger picture, that this is, this is a, a society that is um, also responsible for these kinds of um, things that we're seeing. So we don't write in that way. We write simply as, you know, this perpetrator did this to this uh, victim and the victim was undeserving. Um, and that reinforces this sort of like very individualistic perspective on, uh, on crime and violence. The next one that, that I want to talk about is conservative ideology. And this is... Um, Conservative in the sense that it suggests um, that violence is appropriate. So, so it's suggesting to us that um, when violence is meant to maintain social order, um, it is appropriate 
And that when it is, is challenging the social order, it is not appropriate. So it's sort of, it's saying that violence can be used to maintain the status quo, essentially. And so this is, this is for example, if we think about the race riots in the U.S., the violence that the police um, use to control crowds is seen as normal and natural and appropriate. But the violence that, that um, protesters use to actually create good social change to address substantial social issues is seen as, as problematic. So the way that, that newspapers are reporting on this is that um, that they, they side with the authority, essentially. They side with politicians. They side with the police. They side with those who, um, who are in power rather than actually make, taking a side with, with the side that is in the interests of the, of the collective or in the interests of, of public good. So this is, this is uh, partly in relation to editorial interference, but also partly because, um, you know, as journalists, particularly once you're established, you know, the threat to your livelihood by opposing the, the accepted uh, narrative is, is very real. And so very often journalists will side with the, the side that has power rather than um, the side that has right and good on their, on their side. So um, this, is, this is what they mean by conservative ideology. So in reporting, it's hard to challenge the status quo, the, the way that things are normally, have normally been done. Um, so, for example, if we think about the defunding the police thing, that's coming in the U.S. from uh, from the, the protesters themselves. It's not coming from the media. It's not coming from um, from people who are, who are are producing news media in that space. I know certainly we had a conversation after watching Mana shot down about the ways that. Uh, the media in South Africa was producing stories about who was at fault for Marikana. And I think that we can definitely see conservative ideology embedded in that, uh, in that conversation. So where, where the news media were, were consistently reporting that this was an issue of the miners who were striking and who were violent rather than recognizing the role that the, the industry had, that police had, that government had towards actually addressing legitimate concerns of the miners. And so by, by doing that, by consistently reporting in a way that, that put the spotlight on the miners, the news media was obscuring the sort of social order, the social norms behind that, and therefore reinforcing the, that system. Um, in that way. Okay, and then lastly, political diversion. And in fact, political diversion is inherent, I think, in all of these. But political diversion is where the news media focuses on the individual and that the bad individual who's committed the crime rather than the social problem that causes that person to, to do that. So we are looking at that bad or mad individual rather than looking at those who are gaining from that individual. Um, so we're not seeing 
um, the the industry behind it. We're not seeing the the legal structures behind it. We're not seeing the governance issues behind it or the political issues behind it. We're just seeing that one individual who um, is committing a certain violent act, and um, I'm very aware that that very often. Uh, students who are learning this for the first time always want to go back to, yes, but that individual needs to be punished. And yes, that individual does need to be punished. I, I completely agree with that. But I think in addition, so this is an add-on, um, we also need to think about uh, a world, a society, a, a country where we don't make any more of those people, where we can um, where we can make people who are um, are going to be good people who aren't going to then go on to commit crime um, or violence. So um, we need both of those things. And, and to do that, we need to also look as the media, as newsmakers, at those who are um, causing those social conditions that make people into violent offenders. So if, if for example... Um, we have a, a, a structural issue that, that is not being uh, fixed by uh, community leaders, by um, po political leaders, by those in power um, with wealth and resources to, to make a change. We, we can't just blame that one person who commits the crime. We also need to blame those people. We also need to say things need to change at that level um, in relation to how they are doing what they're doing. Sorry, I just want to... Okay. So um, those are the, the media theories, and I'm going to stop there. The, the slides continue to talk about random violence and gender-based violence, but we aren't going to cover those today. And what I do want to do is maybe just talk a little bit about the, the media theories. So um, uh, so if there's any questions about the media theories, does anybody want to ask? Any questions about media theories? Yes, please ask. There was a was it a question? No, okay. You just put your mic on for a second. Okay. Um so I want you to think about what the media is doing and, and the the kinds of ways that the media communicates messages with us about who who is the perpetrator, who is the the victim. And what kinds of stories are being told, and um, the ways that that tells people what is happening in the world. So even without telling us, it tells us stuff that that may be embedded in in the conversation, rather than um, uh, directly what they say. So what they say is. You know, a person is walking down the street and gets beheaded for their, their cell phone. Um, what, they, what they communicate is that, that perhaps that there's a, a race element to this. Perhaps there's a, um, a, a, a threat to people that this is what's going to happen to them. So that this sort of like moral panic stuff, like we start to panic. 
um, perhaps that they're communicating that um, this one particular person is is a completely evil lunatic um, and they're not in, engaging with why or how this person um, committed that crime. And so they're communicating that that they are just these odd, unusual people who commit crime and you, we, get, we can't actually understand where that comes from or, or why. Um, when in fact, if we... If we really explored what makes those people commit those kinds of uh, acts of violence, we might better be able to understand and fix the society that we live in that um, is making people to be like that. And that doesn't mean that we ourselves would be like that, but we can at least look at the world with with a, a, a real engagement for thinking about what is actually happening in this space um, that makes people to, to commit crime and how can we engage with it? Whereas if we just think they happen to be these strange, weird people who commit these unusual acts of violence and we don't know how they got there or why, we can't do very much about it. So to really interrogate what causes people to commit crime and violence, to, to really tell the full story so that we can then uh, properly engage with and uh, and intervene and, and change the world that we live in. Okay, um, any last questions before I talk about the assessment? Anybody? Okay, so then I'm going to try and share my screen with the assignment on it. It's just loading. Uh, no, not the marking sheet. <laughs> I want the assignment. Um, I don't know if this is it. Yes, okay. So ignore, ignore at the top. Okay, so... What the assign? Uh, can everybody see the the what's on my screen? Yes, Miss. Okay. Sarah. Sure. So your assignment says to you, I'm going to highlight it here. Discuss the role of news media in reporting of accounts of violence in South Africa. Select an instance or event of crime or violence in South Africa that has been covered by South African media and write an analysis of how it has been reported. Okay, so that's the basic assignment. To do this, you must find multiple articles or reports on the incident you have chosen and compare mainstream accounts with investigative accounts. So for example, from the Mail and Guardian and Daily Maverick, as well as social media and film. Explain the different perspectives with close attention to the failures of journalistic ethics and responsibility that took place in the mainstream media coverage. Refer to concepts such as levels of violence, news values, moral panic, and random violence from your course material on representations of crime and violence. Make sure to include a discussion on, so mainstream accounts, investigative media, social media, and the analysis of the class films. Um, note that the analysis must compare and analyze in depth the reporting of your chosen incident 
It is not enough to explain what happened. And then please ensure that you attach all articles that you have referred to. Okay, that's the assignment. On the next page, you'll see this. I'll, I'll share with everybody and I'll send this on the email. The how you're going to be marked in terms of the length of the assignment, 1,000 words to 1,500 words, the style issues, what you must include in the content, how to reference, and editing. Okay. But the assignment itself, so let me go through it. So the first thing you need to do is you need to pick a, um, a news event. It can be any news event on crime or violence. So you could pick Marikana if you want to go back in time, or you could pick um, an event of gender-based violence, or you could pick an event of, um, uh, I don't know, uh, uh, forced removals within a community. You could pick any instance of crime or violence that has been covered in the news media in South Africa. Any instance. It could be xenophobia. It could be um, somebody being killed on a farm like we had an hour in the test. It could be um, anything, anything, anything you want, right? You get to pick which uh, event you choose. You could even look at, at um, some of the articles in the, the list that I gave you. That's fine as well. So whatever you want to choose, it doesn't matter to me. Once you have decided what event you want to look at, you're going to find different ways that it's been reported. So something that's only been reported in one place isn't going to work very well. You want to find ones that have been reported in, in lots of places. So you want to find articles that have been reported on mainstream media. Mainstream media in this case means uh, newspapers that um, or radio that is reporting as something is happening. So like this would be like your um, your daily news, your ma um, the uh, Independent, Sunday Tribune, uh, what else? Uh, so Les, we're probably... Um, so there's a, there's a couple of, of, of mainstream papers, those are, those are newspapers, but you could look at broadcaster radio as well, that are reporting as things are happening. So... If something happens today, it's in this afternoon's newspaper. Or if it happens today, maybe it's in tomorrow morning's newspaper. But it's it's that immediate sort of uh, uh, ways that, that uh, print media responds to events in the world. And it's usually shorter articles. I mean, it depends on, on where it's written. If it's on the front page, sometimes they're longer. But um, mostly they, they're fairly short and they tell you what has happened. Right? What is the events that have happened? Then I want you to get investigative media on that same event. So if you're looking at Marikana, you'll get um, articles from the Daily News and you'll get articles from the Mail and Guardian, for example. That will, be, that will tick off your mainstream and your investigative media. So you want to um, get from both of those two sources. Investigative media is primarily ones that are looking at the event through a more um, like detailed coverage. So they, the articles are usually longer. Sometimes they give uh, more explanation of the causes. Um, sometimes they will tell you about a series of events. But, um, but I think you sort of understand that these are ones that are, are as the result of investigations. And they sometimes happen 
quite a bit of time after that event has happened. That's not immediate reporting. And then you want to reference social media. So, so has this been spoken about on social media? So are there any blogs? Are there any hashtags? Are there any um, conversations on social media that are talking about this? You don't need to get everything that's ever been written or spoken about about your topic, but select a, a, a create a selection of things that you have found to, to analyze. And then you want to make a link to the films. Not all of the things that you have, that you might choose, not all of the events that you choose might be linked to a film, but um, there might be some, some kind of connection that you might want to make. And um, those of you who are doing gender-based violence, um, I would encourage you to save that for the next assignment because our next assignment is gender-based violence. And we haven't watched the gender-based violence film. So I would encourage you to save it. But if you feel strongly about it, then you might want to make the link to other parts of, of the movie. So, for example, if you see um, power dynamics, you might want to say that, you know, while gender-based power dynamics are unique, you can see power dynamics also in some of the other films. Or if you see... Um, things like how the media contributes to that. You can talk about how the media is seen in some of the other films. So you can still make a connection to the films, even if the film is not specifically about your topic. So those who are doing Maricana, lucky you, you have a film specifically about Maricana. But um, I actually have found that students who choose Maricana um, for this assignment uh, tend to want to over-rely on what's already been written about Maracana instead of telling me what they see. So also be, if you do pick it, be very careful that you are showing me what you see in these mainstream articles and investigative articles and not writing what other people have said online about Maracana and the ways that Maracana has been reported. So that's a big warning to all of you. Um, don't um, Don't rely on... Uh, what you see on Google or Wikipedia because Google and Wikipedia aren't looking at the articles that you're looking at. Once you've got all of that material together, so once you've got all of the material that, that links to your topic from these different places, you are going to analyze it. So you are going to say, what am I seeing in this? Am I seeing any of the theories that we've covered in the, in co in the course so far? So maybe... What I'm seeing is in the mainstream accounts, there's a lot of um, rational self-interest that's emerging. Or maybe I'm seeing a lot of um, uh, childhood theories in the investigative media. Whatever you are seeing, and only you can say what you're seeing because you're the ones looking at those articles, you have to analyze and make sense of what these articles are doing. Are they using any one theory to make sense of the event that you are, you are looking at. And you will then record that in your assignment. What are they doing? Are they, what, are the, what kind of story are they telling? Not, I don't want to know how many people died in Maracana. If that's the event you're choosing, I don't want to know how many people died. I want to know why talking about how many people died says something about what that article is doing. So is that article creating fear amongst people and therefore is it relying on moral panic? 
Is it um, doing something else? You need to tell me what that is. Um, so don't spend your time telling me what the events of Marikana were. Tell me what is happening in the ways that journalists are telling that story. What are they doing? And then um, at the end, to summarize what you have found and to make a conclusion. So have journalists done a good job of telling about that event? Or have they relied a lot on moral panic? Or other theories that, that we've covered in class, have they simplified, for example, using media theories? And what does that do? That's the conclusion that you want to get to. What does that do for people? When they read uh, about Marikana, do they, do, do they then believe something that they, isn't true, right? Is that what, what these articles do? Or, um, or does it reinforce other kinds of uh, expectations around race or class or whatever in society? Does it reinforce or normalize violence in how we do things as South Africans? What do, does what you've seen in those articles do? And maybe it does something good. If it does something good, great. I want you to tell me that as well. But if it's doing some of the problematic work that we see in the theories, I want you to show that as well. So I want you to, to first of all, pick an event. Second, find all the different kinds of sources that you need. Thirdly, to analyze those using the course theories. And then fourth, to make a conclusion. What does that do? So that's what the assignment is asking you. Are there any questions about that? Okay, everybody's clear about what, what you need to do? Uh, is it, uh, are we allowed to look as far as apartheid? Are you allowed to look as far as apartheid? Yes, absolutely. If you, if you want to go back in history and find articles on all of that from apartheid, that's fine. Obviously, you're going to have to tell your reader where all your sources are coming from because, like, your social media um, sources are going to be more current and your, your other sources might be older. But so long as you tell your reader where everything is coming from and how you're making sense of it, I think there's no problem with picking an apartheid uh, instance of crime or violence. That's, that's fine. Okay, there's another hand. And Ngobo? Yes. I need to know when the assignment is due. Okay. So the, the, the draft of the assignment is due on the 5th of July. So you've got three weeks to, to, to do it, um, just over three weeks to, to write your draft. So you've got, you've got quite a bit of time to work on it. Okay. I hope that, that helps. I, I'm not telling you when the final one is due because I want to first consult with all of you and give you feedback. Um, and then I will let you know when the final is due. It might be that what happens is when I give you feedback, it might be specific to you. So I might say you only need to change one paragraph. You only need two days. Or I might say you, you need to rethink the whole thing. You need 10 days. Um, it might be unique to each of you, but I think what's more likely is, is that I will 
meet with you in that first week when I'm back. And then after the holiday, I will ask you for the final, um, the final version.